Welcome to the Cross Lane Podcast, a community committed to bringing people to Jesus. I want to begin this morning, we're going to talk about the resurrection, there's a big surprise for you, um, but I want, to, I want to begin a little differently today. This sermon's a little different. Um, you're going to learn a lot today, I hope. That's my goal, is that you walk out here and you go, I, I, I really learned a lot there. But to start, I need to, I need to read you the story, okay? You need to hear the whole story, because we're going to kind of pull the story apart a little bit, and I need you to know what happened. So I had a professor in Bible college that used to talk about our sanctified imaginator, and he would read scripture to us, and he'd say, when you hear this, you need to put on your sanctified imaginator. What that means is I want you to be able to visualize. When I, when I'm going to ask you in a moment, not yet, but in a moment, I'm going to ask you to close your eyes as I read this, and I want you to try to imagine the sights and the sounds and the touches and the smells i want you to i want you to put yourself there i want you to try to soak as much of it in and try to live the moments that i'm going to read for you so with with your cooperation i would just ask you to just close your eyes uh, for just a couple minutes this is a fairly long passage i'm going to read so relax i had some people come in first service said they hadn't had real good night's sleep and they were a little worried they were going to fall asleep Uh, i realize i'm running a risk right now but uh, we'll risk it um, close your eyes, let me read this to you. I want you to be in the moment, okay? I want, you to, I want you to be there, I want you to feel it. Carrying his own cross, he went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with two others, one on each side, and Jesus in the middle. Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this sign, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. The chief priests of the Jews protested to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but that this man claimed to be the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, dividing them into four shares, one for each of them. With the undergarment remaining, this garment was seamless, woven in one piece from the top to bottom. Let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by lot who will get it. This happened that the scripture might be fulfilled that said, they divided my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. So this is what the soldiers did. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to her, Woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, the disciple took her into his home. Later, knowing that everything now had now been finished and so that scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant, and lifted it to Jesus' lips. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Now it was the day of preparation, and the next day was to be a special Sabbath. Because the Jewish leaders did not want the bodies left on the crosses during the Sabbath, they asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. The soldiers, therefore, came and broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified with Jesus and then those of the other. 
But when they came to Jesus and found that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. These things happened so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken, and as another scripture says, they will look on the one they have pierced. Later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jewish leaders. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who had earlier visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. Taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with the spices and strips of linen. This was in accordance with the Jewish burial customs. At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid. Because it was the Jewish day day of preparation, and since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter ran, and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over, looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. I've missed more than 9,000 shots in my career. I've lost almost 300 games. 26 times I've been trusted to take the game-winning shot and missed. I've failed over and over and over again in my life. And that is why I succeed. God has no illusions about you and your sin and about me and my sin. God God has no expectation that we wouldn't sin. Let that sink in on you a little bit. He he, he knows we're sinners. He doesn't expect us to go through life and live it perfectly. He knows that. You're a sinner. That's what you are. That's what I am. We are sinners. There was a, a, a commercial a long time ago about Michael Jordan. It was a Gatorade commercial, and it was that there was a little song that went with it, and um, the, the basic thrust of the commercial was, I want to be like Mike. You know, all these little kids were playing ball with Michael Jordan, and they were singing, I want to be like Mike. Well, you know, there's a lot of areas in my life where I would like to be like Michael Jordan. Any, any male, I think, probably would be able to say that. Um, we, are, we find ourselves woefully lacking in the area of athleticism when it comes to Michael Jordan. But there's one area where I can identify with Michael Jordan. It's that line when he says, I have failed 
again and again and again in my life. I have failed over and over and over again. All of us in here can say that. That's why Romans tells us in Romans 3, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You see, we have a sin problem. None of us are perfect. All of us are broken. I tell visitors all the time, if you want to know about our church, here's what you need to understand. When you walk in on a Sunday morning, all of us are broken. We're a mess. Not any of us that get this right all the time. At any given point in the week, some of us are doing better than others. We've got every kind of imaginable sin in our building, just people dealing with all kinds of stuff because we're human, and as humans, we're sinners. In fact, the running joke at Cross Lane, I had a, a, some friends of mine brought a visitor last week, and as they came in, the visitor looked at me and said, I'm not sure you want me in your building. It might fall down. And my standard reply to that is always the same. No, no, we reinforced it. And we didn't just reinforce it for you, we reinforced it for us, because we know we need this thing to be pretty strong, right? I mean, we don't, we are all kind of testing it when we walk in. Romans 6.23 says this, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. See, there is a cost to sin. It's referred to as a wage. When you work, You work hard for your money, and at the end of the the work period, they give you a wage. That's what you deserve. That's what you've earned by by putting forth your, your, your blood, sweat, and tears. See, there's a reason God doesn't want you to sin, and it's not because God wants to be some kind of cosmic killjoy in your life. God is not out to ruin your fun. I've talked to a lot of people and that's kind of what they think. They, they seem to approach God as if God doesn't want them to have fun. You know, he's just, he just wants to kill my buzz, that's all. Listen, he doesn't want you to sin because he loves you. And he knows that sin has a price. Sin is going to hurt either you or someone that you love. In fact, probably all the pain that you have experienced in your life is the result of either your sin or the sin of somebody else that has blown back on you. When God tells us not to sin, it's not that he's trying to keep something from us. I get the impression. I think think that's what Adam and Eve thought back in the Garden of Eden, you know, when the devil comes and he tempts them. and, And I think they thought, you know, God's holding out on you. He's got something really good, and he doesn't want you to have it. I think that's where we get sometimes. Like, Boy, you know, there's a reason God says no to me, and I want that. Whatever it is, he's trying to hide it from me, and I want it. As a parent, I I always looked for ways to say yes to my kids. I hated to say no to my kids. The only time that I ever said no to my children was in an effort to protect them or provide for them. Right? That's why we say no to our kids. We don't say no to our kids for no reason. No, son. You cannot play on the railroad tracks. Right? Trains come through there, you will get killed. You can't do that. No, son. You cannot stick a fork in the electrical outlet. But I like the sparks. No. You'll get hurt. I love you. I don't want you to be hurt, so I'm going to tell you no. That's what God's doing. Listen, God hates sin, and God hates sin because it hurts us, 
and because it does not glorify him. And because he hates sin, he has to punish it. All throughout the Old Testament, we read verses about animals that would be sacrificed. And in every instance, when you read about these animals that are going to be sacrificed in the Old Testament, what you read are the same two words. They're sacrifices to atone for sin, but but there's always two words. You always see the words without defect or without blemish. Everything sin touches, it kills. Everything. So all through the Old Testament, it's really bloody because all these people are, you know, there, there, were, there were prescriptions for everything that made you unclean. If you touched a dead body, you were unclean. When women went through their cycle, they were considered unclean, and they had to offer sacrifices for that kind of stuff. There were sacrifices happening all through the Old Testament, and, and you know, various and sundry sins that were identified, you would, you would offer sacrifices. So all through the Old Testament, I tell people, the Old Testament's really bloody, Blood flows through the Old Testament. All these animals that they would find that were supposed to be without defect and without blemish, they would put on the altar, slaughter the animal, and they would offer it as an atonement for their sin. And then you come to the New Testament, and you come to Jesus, and in Romans chapter 5, we read this about Jesus. God, but God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were still sinners... Christ died for us. Two things there. God loves you. God died for you. Frederick Farrar describes the suffering that took place in the crucifixion, and I'd like for you to hear that. For indeed, a death by crucifixion seems to include all that pain and death can have of horrible and ghastly. Dizziness, cramps, thirst, starvation, sleeplessness, traumatic fever, tetanus, shame, publicity of shame, long continuance of torment or of anticipation, mortification of untended wounds, all intensified just up to the point at which they can be endured at all, but all stopping just short of the point which would give the sufferer the relief of unconsciousness. The unnatural position made every movement painful, but lacerated veins and crushed tendons throbbed with incessant anguish. The wounds inflamed by exposure gradually gangrened. The arteries, especially at the head and stomach, became swollen and depressed with surcharged blood. And while each variety of misery went on gradually increasing, there was added to them the intolerable pain, burning and raging thirst, and all the physical complications caused an internal excitement and anxiety which made the prospect of death itself, of death, the unknown enemy at whose approach man usually shudders, bear the aspect of a delicious and exquisite release. It was the love of Christ. While we were still sinners that drove him to the cross. Jesus did that for you. And he did that for me. He did it because he was the only one who could. He was the only one qualified. He's the only one that was perfect. See, it had to be without blemish, without defect. And Jesus is the only one that could be described that way. His life was perfect. 
And so then you come to Romans 10, verse 9, and we read these words. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. There's two things going on there. Confess, believe. Two components. The first is you confess with your mouth. You see, what you believe about Jesus matters. When you saw young Macy's baptism a few moments ago, you heard me lead her through the confession, and I asked her to repeat after me, I believe Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. I contend that what you believe about Jesus saves you. Believing the wrong thing about Jesus will not save you. If I had asked Macy, repeat after me, I believe Jesus was the greatest circus clown that ever lived. That's not true. And believing that about Jesus will not save you. One of the things that we do when we get baptized, one of the things we're saying in that statement is we're, we're, we're saying that Jesus is Lord. It's amazing to me how many people can come to Christ and they think, well, I got saved. Yeah. And you also took on a Lord. You also placed yourself under the authority of Jesus. That should change you. That should change how you live. It should change how you treat people. Josh McDowell said one time, everybody wants a Savior, but nobody wants a Lord. See, we want to be saved, but we don't want anybody to tell us what to do. And Jesus says, no, I'm your Lord. See, when you confess Christ, when you accept him and receive him into your life, you are confessing him as Lord. It should make a difference. The second part of that verse is this. Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. You see, believing that Jesus was raised from the dead is what makes us disciples. It's what makes us Christians. My entire faith is built upon the resurrection of Jesus. Were you to take that away from me, were you to disprove the resurrection to me, I would walk away from the faith, I would never preach again, I would live a totally ungodly life, and you probably would hate my guts. What reason would there be to be good? Who, who is there then that can tell me what to do? I, with Frederick Nietzsche, would then will to power. I'll make my own rules, thank you very much. Might makes right. The Apostle Paul said this, if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. So for the remainder of the time we have, I want to talk about the resurrection. It's a very important thing. Our faith is built on the resurrection of Jesus, and if it didn't happen, we shouldn't be here. We should be doing something else. Now, I, in my line of work, I get a chance to talk to an awful lot of different kinds of people, and one of the groups of people I get to talk to are people who used to go to church that don't go to church anymore. And when you ask them about it, you get something like this. Well, I don't believe that anymore. Okay, so you did the research, and you, you, you did some intellectual studying, and you came to a place where you once believed in the resurrection, but after the research, you looked at it and decided, I don't believe Jesus rose from the dead, and I left the church. Is that what you're telling me? Well, no, not exactly. You see, here's why most people leave church. Here's why most people don't live for Jesus anymore. They skip a Sunday or two, a Sunday or two turns into four, four turns into eight, eight turns into a couple of months, a couple of months turns into six months, turns into a year, turns into years, and they just quit going to church. 
And along with that, they aren't encouraged, they aren't taught, they never worship, they don't have the words of Jesus on their lips and in their mouth. And pretty soon after they've left church, it just all kind of starts to fade away. And they're, they're now worshiping a different thing, whatever it is, money, motorcycle, boat, lake house, name it. Whatever it is, that's what they worship. And they do that with a new congregation. And they, they get encouraged in a new way. But they didn't study. They didn't hold it up to the light and go, you know what, I don't believe that anymore. So if you're going to walk away from Jesus... I just want you to at least do the homework. If you're here today and you've never really considered Jesus, and you've thought, you know, what's this all about? I, you know, I, I'm, I'm new to this whole thing. I don't know what I think about Jesus. This is a great day for you to be here. I'm going to talk about the resurrection. I'm going to give you five theories of the resurrection. Um, we're going to go through these, and, and I'm going to basically tell you that the first four I give you, when you examine them, they don't make any sense. There's one that kind of makes sense, that does make sense. And that's where we're going to rest, and I think you kind of know where I'm going to go. But there are five theories of the resurrection. I want to look at them very carefully. The first theory is this, the first theory, and the reason I showed you all this about the cross was so you'd know what Jesus went through. The first theory is the swoon theory. The theory is that Jesus really wasn't dead when they took him off the cross, that when they put him in the cool of the tomb and they put those spices in with the wrap, that that had some kind of medicinal effect and that made him feel better, kind of like when you've been mowing the grass and you come in, you lay on your, you know, your cool tile concrete floor and you feel better and then you go out and finish mowing the grass. That's kind of what they're saying. He swooned. He, he felt better. So after he felt better in the tomb, he got up and just kind of let himself out. Keep in mind, Jesus would have received in the tomb no warmth, no food, no water, no medical attention. He sustained life-threatening wounds, an immense amount of blood loss, and he got no medical treatment for any of that in the tomb. And so we're expected to believe that a man who's been punished and treated the way Jesus' body has been treated, and we're going to hear a little bit about that in just a few minutes, we're to believe that he was able to stand on those feet that got pierced and use the hands that had been pierced and let himself out from the inside of the tomb. I tell you, no. I want to introduce to you uh, a video. This is a, a guy named David, Dr. David Acuna. He is a trauma surgeon, and uh, his words on this are much better than mine. I want you to listen to him talk about the physiology of the crucifixion. Yeah, I, I believe that Christ's suffering... Uh, and the demonstration of the kind of, um, of physiologic stress that his human body was under uh, is manifested in the Garden of Gethsemane where it's described that he was sweating blood. And there, are, there is a well-documented uh, medical condition in which patients who are under tremendous amount of uh, emotional stress and physiological stress can in fact uh, sweat blood because little blood vessels within the glands burst and then the blood is expressed. The, the, the scourge involved the use of a, a short whip with pieces of uh, typically metal, sometimes bone, sometimes pieces of porcelain wrapped in these leather straps, which is then utilized to, to come across uh, typically the back, the shoulders, the legs of the victim. 
Uh, and uh, the first few passes across a particular body part would tear through the skin, the fat, uh, but eventually, once the outer layers were, were uh, torn away, it would start getting in the muscle and the tendon. And of course, along the way, you're ripping through all the blood vessels that supply all those tissues. And so you're losing blood the whole time. The plant that was described um, uh, actually had a very long thorn, um, not the little thorns that we would think from a rose bush. These were thorns that were uh, typically an inch and a half to two inches in length. The scalp is one of the most vascular portions of our bodies. It had a huge blood supply up there. So then having those thorns shoved down into the, you know, down onto the bony plate would have gone through all the scalp which in and of itself would have created a huge amount of blood loss. Uh, I've seen people actually bleed to death from just a scalp injury. So uh, it's not a small injury to have, uh, who knows, dozens uh, of these things shoved into your scalp. And so that would have caused more blood loss. Typically when a victim has to uh, uh, carry the cross, what has been described uh, in the literature, in, in actual Roman literature, is they, they describe, the, they, they carry the crossbar. Uh, and the crossbar is estimated alone, was estimated to weigh about 110 pounds. And of course, if your arms are stuck out here, wrapped up on the cross, crossbar, and you fall down, you need help getting up. You, you, you just can't get up on your own because there's no possible way without your arms to get up. So you would have needed help getting up. If he, fall, if he fell over, there's a good chance that he could have hit his chest, which, which then could account for the possibility of a cardiac injury. Anatomically, we consider the wrists as part of the hand. And so uh, with the placement of the nails between the radius and the ulna, at that position, it, it still fits, fits the definition of being in the hand and it's in a position in which the nail won't rip out, which you have to have, you have, to have a solid point of fixation. Uh, another interesting point about the placement of that is the median nerve goes right straight through that particular uh, 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 portion of the wrist. And so there would have been uh, either destruction of the nerve or, or impingement of the nerve that would have created tremendous amount of pain so that every time you try to take a breath, you'd be, it'd be agonizing. You'd be pushing down on spiked feet which of course hurt, and then you'd be hanging on spiked arms. And so you alternate from excruciating pain to excruciating pain every time you take a breath. So, so even if he survives the actual crucifixion, he would have had to survive what I believe to be a, a, a lethal injury from the spear to, to find out whether he was alive or not. What's described is the loss of water and blood and that would entail either the, the uh, uh, either a pleural effusion or pericardial fusion, and the blood would have come from either pulmonary artery, a pulmonary vein, the aorta, or even the cava, or the heart itself. None of those injuries, unless you're treated immediately by a trauma surgeon like myself, with all the advanced equipment that we have, would be survivable after even a few minutes. Christ says the Son of God could have survived anything. He chose to manifest himself as a human at that point in time and allowed himself to die. And, and being human at that point in time, he could not have survived 
this particular series of traumas. It's not possible. Um, Christ as God could have survived anything they threw at him. And, but he chose to be Christ, the human, at that point in time, to die for our sins. And that given that, that self-limitation of remaining to be human, he died. He did not survive the event. I, uh, I'm profoundly impacted by it. Because I realized that the price that he paid was something I'm not. I would be, never be willing to do for probably anybody. It's very difficult for me to even sing songs about the cross, even in worship. Because I truly do understand what he paid, the price that he paid. Jesus had been sleep deprived. He was likely hungry, probably very hungry, dehydrated, uh, exhaustion, just everything that he went through, not to mention the fact that they marched him back and forth between Pilate and Herod. Uh, just, you know, they wouldn't have taken it easy on him. The scourging. If you've ever seen the, the Passion of the Christ, the, the way that's depicted is fairly accurate. It's an extremely excruciating, bloody, violent thing. I've commented to Didi several times. It just amazes me one human being's ability to hurt another. The things that we are capable of doing to each other and to think that they whipped him like they did and what he went through uh, mind-boggling to me the crown of thorns you heard him talk about the the blood loss there he would have carried a crossbar somewhere between 90 and 130 pounds that would have weighed the nails through his wrist the nails through his feet he talked about the the, the nerves that you would hit can you just imagine the, the the you know i read this week one of the things that they said was the word excruciating came out of the experience of the cross that's kind of where that word comes from the spear driven through his abdomen. I want to show you a picture. Our, our title slide has a picture of the tomb. I want to show you another one. Um, I actually kind of like that one better um, now that I'm thinking about it. But the, what you see, I, growing up as a kid, I would, I, you know, I'd hear about the tomb and I would think, well, that's a boulder. That's a big rock that they rolled around. No, it was more like a wheel. would have been set in a channel. The, the, the inaccuracy of this particular piece of art is that it's on level ground. Uh, probably more than likely it was in a channel that was on an incline slightly. They would take several men, probably some kind of leverage apparatus as well, to roll that back, and then they would chalk it. And when they put someone in and they were going to seal that tomb, they would pull the chalk, it would roll down into place, and usually they would kind of dimple that, charter, that uh, channel just in front of the door, and it would stay in place. Um, it would take several men to move that, from the inside to imagine a person, a whole healthy man, being able to move that stone that probably weighed hundreds, if not probably thousands of pounds, impossible. There's no handhold, there are no handles. You're not going to get out from the inside. It's it just the idea that Jesus swooned and came to life makes no sense. A whole healthy man wouldn't do that. Are we really to believe that after laying for hours with unattended wounds such as Jesus suffered, coupled with his physical state, even before he was crucified, that it would make him better 
and not worse? There's a skeptic named David Friedrich Strauss. He doesn't even believe that Jesus rose from the dead, but this is what he said. It is impossible that a being who had stolen half dead out of the sepulcher, who crept about weak and ill, wanting medical treatment had required, that required bandaging, strengthening, and indulgence, and who still at least yielded to his sufferings, could have given to the disciples the impression that he was a conqueror over death in the grave, the prince of life, an impression which lay at the bottom of their future ministry. In all of the sightings that we read about after the resurrection, when you read in the Bible about Jesus appeared to that one or that or this one, never do you get the impression that Jesus appears in weakness. He always appears completely whole. He always appears in strength. He does not appear in any way limping or holding something or or favoring anything, he appears in strength. So the, the swoon theory, you think what you want, but I just, I hear that and it's like, no, that's not for me. The second theory is this, the women went to the wrong tomb. That in their grief, they went, you know, the city was full of tombs and they just went to the wrong tomb. You know, there would be tombs everywhere and they just went to the wrong one. First of all, this was a private tomb and that of a very wealthy man. We're told that this happened, this tomb was not far from where Jesus was crucified, this tomb would have more than likely stood alone by itself. Would have been hard to mistake. We're told in Mark chapter 15, we're told in Luke 23 that the women just, I mean, less than 72 hours prior to this have made careful note of where the tomb was. It's reported, you know, when they told the disciples that the tomb was empty, they ran. Did they go to the wrong tomb as well? How about the angel that appeared to the women at the tomb? Were they at the, was he at the wrong tomb as well? If you're, a San, if you're a part of the Sanhedrin and you hear people talking about the resurrection of Jesus and you, you, you know where the body of Jesus is you, and you know where the right tomb is, you simply take them to the right tomb, you put their head in there and you say, there's the dead body of Jesus, shut up about a resurrection. It didn't happen. And don't you think that Joseph of Arimathea, the guy that owned the tomb, probably knew which tomb was his? So the idea that they went to the wrong tomb really does not hold water. The third theory is this, that, that uh, all the people post-resurrection who saw Jesus were hallucinating. They were hallucinating. Uh, generally, only certain kinds of people have hallucinations. They are People who are high-strung, they're highly imaginative, they're very anxious and nervous. Jesus' appearances were not limited to people of any particular makeup. The, 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 there's a variety of moods. Mary Magdalene was weeping. The other women were afraid and astonished. Peter was full of remorse. We're told that, that Thomas was full of doubt. The pair on the road to Emmaus were distracted. One neurobiologist said this, hallucinations are marked by variability and inconstancy. It is extremely unlikely then that two persons would have had the same hallucination at the same time. And I would add this, it is inconceivable that 500 people would have the exact same hallucination at the exact time. So believe that theory if you want to. I don't buy the theory of hallucination. Theory four, someone stole the body. Either the disciples or the Jews or the Romans took the dead body of Jesus. Now, when we talk about a dead body, there are only two explanations. It is either a human work or it is a divine work. And if it is a human work, it's one of two things. Either friends of Jesus stole the body or enemies of Jesus stole the body. 
If it was enemies, there was no motive for them to steal the body. And if it was friends, there was no power. Matthew says this, The next day, the one after preparation day, the chief priests and the Pharisees went to Pilate. Sir, they said, we remember that while he was still alive, that deceiver, which is amazing to me, they hated him so much they would not say his name. That deceiver said, after three days, I will rise again. So give the order for the tomb to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come and steal the body and tell the people that he has been raised from the dead. This last deception will be worse than the first. Take a guard, Pilate answered. Go make the tomb as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure by putting a seal on the stone and posting a guard. Now let me just ask you a question as I read that to you. Does this sound serious to you? Do these men sound serious about making sure that some notion that Jesus has risen from the dead, do they sound serious about trying to quell that and put that down and make sure that that does not circulate? Let me ask you this. Would you expect that any of the men that are going to guard this tomb would fall asleep? Would you expect that they would all fall asleep? Hold that thought. Because the next thing that happens is the resurrection. And then we read this. While the women were on their way, some of the guards went into the city and reported to the chief priests everything that had happened. When the chief priests had met with the elders and devised a plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money, telling them, you are to say his disciples came during the night and stole him away while we were asleep. My question is, if you're asleep, how do you know that they stole the body? If this report gets to the governors, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So the soldiers took the money and did as they were instructed, and this story has been widely circulated among the Jews to this very day. Now, I said earlier that the enemies of Christianity had no motive to steal the body of Jesus. If you're an enemy of Christianity and you have inexplicably stolen the dead body of Jesus, and Christians start talking about, he rose from the dead, he rose from the dead, putting down the rumor is easy. You retrieve the dead body of Jesus, you take it to the town square, you hold it up, and you say, here's the dead body of Jesus, enough about a resurrection. It would have been to Pilate's advantage for the body of Jesus to stay exactly where they put it when they took him off the cross. His main goal was that there would be no unrest in his city. His goal was to make sure that there was, he was going to have a lot of people in the city on this weekend. He was kind of already on a performance review don't want you to get out, you know, he was, he's been told, you better get your city under control. A bunch of Christians running around Jerusalem screaming that Jesus has risen from the dead would have been the last thing Pilate wanted. It was his worst nightmare. His subjects would have known this, and nobody associated with Pilate would have the nerve to go retrieve that body knowing what it would cost Pilate. It wasn't going to happen. The enemies of Jesus had no motive to steal the body of Jesus. As for the disciples stealing the body, they had no power. They scattered like roaches on the night he was arrested. Peter would deny Christ three times that evening. When Jesus finally does appear to the disciples, he does so in an upper room behind a locked door. They were scared to death that they were going to be next. These were not candidates to go steal, overpower guards and steal a body out of a tomb. They're just not candidates to do that. Are we really to believe 
that between the Garden of Gethsemane, when they scattered like roaches to the time of the resurrection, that these men somehow mustered enough courage to go steal the dead body of Jesus? And to what end? Theory five is this. He is who he said he is. He is the Son of God, and he was risen from the dead. I talked about the people to whom Jesus appeared after his resurrection. Sometime after the resurrection, one of the men to whom Jesus appeared was Paul. Paul was a ferocious critic of Christianity. He was an opponent of Jesus. He did everything he could to put down this new movement, this new cult as he would have seen it. And he was on his way to Damascus to attain papers to persecute Christians when Jesus appeared to him. It changed him. It changed him to the point that he decided to change sides and he began to preach the resurrection of Jesus. I want to show you a picture that some of you, if you have a Bible, in the back of your Bible, your Bible may have this picture. These are the four missionary journeys of Paul. Paul, on these missionary journeys, if you were to put them all together, traveled somewhere between probably nine to 11,000 miles on all of these journeys. I want to read to you, as Paul did all these missionary journeys, Paul went through incredible pain. He was horribly mistreated. He was rejected. He was frightened. He's had all kinds of things done to him. I want you to hear Paul's own words about what happened to him as he made these journeys. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. That means he was scourged five times. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I have been constantly on the move. I have been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false believers. I have labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. And then just before Paul dies, and he knows he's about to die, he writes these words. For I am already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time for my departure is near. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. And then Paul is martyred, he is murdered. Eusebius, the church historian, tells us that in A.D. 67, Paul was marched outside the city of Rome and on the Ostian Road was put on his knees and had his head cut off by a sword. I have just one question for you. Why would a man who had devoted his life to putting down this cult, this Jesus movement, He hated it with a passion. He was responsible for the death of many Christians. Why would this man suddenly change his mind, travel thousands of miles, experience all the things that he experienced, experience rejection, experience beatings? His life was threatened. 
Why would he experience cold and hunger and nakedness? Why would he go through fright and rejection? I submit to you that no man would do this for a lie. All of the disciples of Jesus were martyred for their faith. All but one were murdered. I would submit to you that they did not die for a lie. And they did not die because of what they believed. They died because of what they'd seen. They had seen the risen Christ. One of my favorite Christian leaders is a man named Chuck Colson. He was Charles Colson of Watergate fame in the mid-70s. He went to jail. Just before he went to jail, he converted to Christianity, and they asked him, Chuck, why did you convert to Christianity? And he said, here's why. When Watergate broke, there were about 12 or 14 of us that were in on it. And if we could have all just told the same lie for about three weeks, Watergate would have gone away and no one would have ever known. But when it came right down to it and there was a possibility that this one or that one could go to jail, they were not willing to go to jail for a lie. And then it dawned on me, the disciples did not die for a lie. They died for what they had seen. The resurrection means that Jesus won. The resurrection means we have victory over the grave. Paul said it best. I declare to you, brothers and sisters, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, where the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with imperishable and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh death, is your victory? 